we always come to you, Lord, because you're the source of all good and, and of all that we need. And we seek uh, to know you better, Father. We thank you for the word that you've left us with, the miracle that it is. We thank you that you have chosen men like Paul to uh, point up the, uh, the truth of your gospel, the truth of grace and the pointlessness, uh, the folly of trying to earn our way to heaven. And uh, thank you especially for this book of Galatians, Lord, where we will uh, probe the depths of that truth. And uh, we pray that we lift you up in the process, Lord, and that you're glorified in it. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay. By now, you probably think I'm sounding like a broken record. <laughs> and... I am repeating things because Paul repeats things. And in his word, in God's word, he has chosen this book to, to really let us know that our salvation is secure by God's grace. And uh, we started in chapter 1, uh, Paul was uh, putting forth his credentials about both his message and his apostleship because it had been challenged uh, with the Galatians uh, churches where he had previously come and taught them and, and some, a false message had come in. The, these Judaizers uh, were trying to uh, put everybody uh, who was saved back under the law. And uh, Paul just wouldn't have that. And so he gave us his credentials and his, his authority is directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he makes that clear. And God the Father. And uh, so that's what we see in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he then begins to tell us of past events that substantiate the claims that he makes in chapter 1. And I think my heart stopped. Hang on. All right. There's a defibrillator on the wall back there. Somebody go get it. And uh, in chapter 2, he is relating events that have gone before and he, and he tells us about the Jerusalem council, the fact that he'd gone there with Titus who was a Gentile and he led, he led uh, in a private meeting with the, the uh, men of reputation, he uh, presented his message. Nobody changed anything, nobody added anything and they didn't uh, uh, disagree with what he, what he presented. In other words, they gave uh, their full uh, approval of what he had as being the revelation of God. And this is what he has told uh, the uh, Galatians, and this is where we are. Now, we are in a, uh, a section of uh, chapter 2 in which uh, Paul and Peter have come uh, head to head. And it's because of an incident that occurred after the Jerusalem meeting when Peter came to Antioch, which is where uh, Paul uh, was with Barnabas at that time. And uh, when Peter came, the church pr was primarily uh, Gentile. And, uh, but there were Jews there as well. And uh, the custom was that uh, the uh, Gentiles kind of had a table there and the Jews kind of had a table. And, uh, but Peter, uh, displaying the freedom that he had in Christ, began to sit and eat with the Gentiles until some men, some Jews sent from Jerusalem came and uh, seeing them, Peter kind of backtracks and goes around and goes and sits with the Jews and it's really 
because of his reputation, other Jews there kind of are in a quandary. They're confused, and, and even Barnabas is pulled back. And so Paul sees this, and he really doesn't like it. And so uh, this is where we're going to pick up in the second chapter of Galatians in verse 17, uh, verses 17 through 19. So this, was going, this is going to be Paul speaking to Peter, but it's in front of everybody. He wants everyone to hear. He wants us to hear. So let's see what he says. Uh, Galatians 2.17, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And we see Paul continuing to use Peter's example. And he's making a point with the Galatian believers. And he wants them to see that a person in Christ, you're either completely free from the requirements of the law, or you're not free at all. Like all Christians, Peter preached in two ways. He preached with his words, and he preached with his actions. Peter himself would have said, we are, we are saved by grace without works of the law. But his actions had conveyed a different message. And please don't let this shock you. But Peter not only bowed to peer pressure, but Peter sinned. This is what Paul uh, noted. And he sinned either by breaking the Mosaic law to eat with the Gentiles, or by reverting to the law when confronted with his Jewish colleagues. So here's Paul's, here's Paul's question for Peter, and it's really a good one for us too. Uh, if the very life of Christ is in us, as Peter would have agreed and, and even claimed, is Christ then responsible for the sin that Peter committed? And the answer is a resounding no. But if we build again, as Peter did, the system of legalism by reverting to the law from which we have been delivered, we will just show ourselves uh, that we are transgressors. We place ourselves once again, once again under the law and we will fall short, which proves that we are transgressors and it binds us to our sin. So what does Paul mean here when he says for... For through the law, I died to the law. Well, he means exactly that. We shouldn't for a moment think that the law has been canceled. For every person who refuses to trust Christ as their personal Savior, the law is in full force. But Christ died at the hands of the law for our sin. That is, men crucified Jesus for violating the law, for claiming to be God, he was executed. But if, as believers, we were in him, then we are dead as far as the law is concerned. This is Paul's message. And if we're dead to the law, we have no more dealings with it. If you think about it, what's the greatest penalty that the law can demand? Death. Correct, death. And when that law has extracted its maximum penalty, there's nothing more it can do. The law can only kill you once. And all believers died to the law in Christ. Any comments? Praise God. Praise God. Amen. 
Okay, Galatians 2.20. Again, I've chosen the LSV, the literal standard, uh, to read because we have uh, the word uh, of in here. Uh, Galatians uh, 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and that which I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's still talking uh, to everybody that was present. Sometimes it's difficult to see things from God's perspective. So in order to understand the practicality of what Christ has done for us, we have to grasp it by faith, right? When we're born again, we need to understand that a concrete transaction of immeasurable proportions has taken place. It's so concrete that it's going to last for eternity. And by the way, it comes with a guarantee, the seal of the Holy Spirit. But right now at the moment, it may seem more abstract. There are three concrete facts in this verse, verse 20 here. And we must grasp them by faith. Concrete fact number one, I've been crucified with Christ. You know, people in general and atheists in particular fail to understand or they otherwise refuse to believe that we were created. And we know that we were created in Adam and we subsequently fell. As believers, we know that. But listen, all people experience the results of such. Not just us. Everyone knows it. That's why we're all without excuse. But if we're honest, we should be able to acknowledge these facts and that they're obvious. Now, as believers, we may not understand how we've been crucified with Christ. But I promise you, one day, when we stand with Him, that fact will be obvious as well. Remember... Uh, what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. If one died for all, then all died. Right now we take that by faith. Concrete fact number two. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When we trust in Christ for our salvation, we still have the same body, right? But in it is a new life. And that new life is the life of Christ. Uh, he came in the moment that we believed and, and turned from our sins. It's the picture that he gives us in Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse 20, when he's speaking to the Laodicean church. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my uh, voice and opens the door, that is, believes on me, I will come in to him, and I will dine with him, and he with me. Okay. Concrete fact number three. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God. Here again, th that uh, word is used. And in a very real sense, before we believed, we were all identified with Adam. And we are, were indeed sons of Adam. Thankfully, that person, though, has been crucified in Christ, with Christ. As believers, then, we've now been born again as children of God. We've been transferred. John 1 Verses 12 and 13 makes it clear. But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So now in us is the Spirit of Christ 
to whom we have the power to yield. And this is very important. Listen closely. In Christ is the faith that overcomes the world. And this is kind of a hard concept for me to grasp. Uh, so I found an illustration that might help. We can now live our lives in much the same manner as Peter did when he walked on the water with Christ. And I'm speaking in particular about the faith involved in that miraculous event. We can read the account uh, as it's recorded in Matthew 14. Uh, it's verses 22 through 33, and I'll just read it. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he'd sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land. That's on the Galilean Sea. He was being battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, that would have been between three and six in the morning, Jesus, he, came to them walking on the sea. When the uh, disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. So we have here a, this scene, a stormy scene, and the disciples are struggling to stay afloat in a turbulent, turbulent sea. Jesus suddenly appears walking on the water, and he frightens the men. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Then placing his faith in Jesus at the Lord's bidding, Peter steps out on the water. But Peter's faith isn't equal to the raging storm. When Peter begins to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretches forth his hand and catches him. Now note this. Peter concludes that walk back into the boat by the faith of Jesus, not his own. There's an affirmation uh, that we can find in uh, Colossians chapter 1, 27, and Charlie read this last week in his sermon. Uh, says that his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us is our hope of glory. It's his life, his righteousness, and even his faith in us that constitutes any merit before God. And for us, this truth is meant to translate into victory in the present life. That is our, our Christian walk. Any comments? I'm sorry? Is that a plural you Colossians? I'm not sure, but it it applies to every believer. 
Mm -hmm. Very much. Okay, and so we are now to the last verse of chapter 2. Galatians 2.21. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The word here, nullify, uh, in the verse is variously translated as a set aside, uh, reject, make void, or the one I especially like, frustrate. This means to make ineffectual or to bring to nothing. And Paul's making a point here. Two points. First, Christ did not die needlessly. He did not die in vain. And the second point is because righteousness does not come through the law. This had been the whole message that Paul had preached and that the Galatians believers had seemed to understand. But somehow they'd been misled by these false teachers to think that righteousness could be attained by their own ability to keep the law. Any comments? Any thoughts? It is the plural. It is? Okay. And what's the significance of that? Right. Right. This that mystery is going to take is going to really build up and uh, become enlarged in chapter three as we go through because he's going to begin to focus on Abraham, and it's important because Ab all the Jews claim Abraham as their father, and yet we're going to see the blessing, and who it extend extends to. Okay. So we are to chapter three, uh, and we will start. Uh, 3 verse 1 and I've chosen the New King James Version because uh, of the mention of truth uh, as it has in this verse. Let me read. Uh, o foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? So it is that Paul is kind of saddened here that the Galatians believer, believers had turned from the freedom that God's grace had provided. And they turn to the futile pursuit of righteousness by keeping the law. And it's as though he uses the word bewitched. Uh, the Greek is baskeano, and this, I believe, is the only place it occurs in the Bible. It means to cast a, a, an evil a spell on someone, to cast an evil spell, to mesmerize or to hypnotize. By being persuaded to seek righteousness by obeying the laws, the Galatians were, in fact, disobeying truth the truth that Paul had brought to them when he brought the message to them. You know, after his missionary journey uh, to the Galatian churches, Paul thought that he had left the churches in pretty sound condition. He'd uh, instructed them thoroughly in the doctrine of the cross and the significance of Christ's death as a substitute for them. They would have understood that his crucifixion was for them their final judgment just as it is for us. And they'd have, take, they'd have partaken in numerous times in the Lord's Supper, the Communion Supper, and remembering that it depicted Christ's death for them. And they should have understood that in the person of Jesus Christ, the law had executed them and that they were now dead to the law. However, they were now following human wisdom that had snuck in after Paul, thinking that they could somehow merit God's favor by works. 
you know, you have to understand Paul's position here, and he is perplexed as he's writing this. He knows that what makes sense to the flesh, especially in the natural man, should be seen as folly by the Spirit when it's been regenerated, and yet they were missing it. I think he's frustrated. All right, Galatians 2, excuse me, Galatians 3, verses 2 to 5. So Paul, let me read. This is the only thing, then, that I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? They'd indeed, they'd had, the, they'd had the truth of the gospel preached to them, and their hearts, their minds had been opened to receive it. And they had believed, many of them. But Paul is challenging them now to remember their conversion honestly. Which was it, the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And obviously it was by the hearing with faith. And everyone who's been born again of the Spirit should be aware of this fact. It should have it... Uh, testified and affirmed within themselves because, uh, as Paul wrote in Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. You know, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is a finished work, and we receive the benefits of what he did by simple faith in Christ, trusting in Christ as our Savior. That simple step and the regeneration by the Holy Spirit are the beginning of eternal life. Christ's life in us. I want to read another uh, couple of verses here, and it's going to present essentially two worlds, where we were and where we are in Christ. In Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, For he rescued us from the domain of uh, darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son from one world, darkness, to light with his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So the verse is stating that all believers, including the Galatians, have been transferred uh, from one realm, one world, if you would, the domain of darkness, he calls it. This is where the law rules. And they've been placed into another realm, the kingdom of his beloved son, where the law has no more dominion. Having begun then in the Holy Spirit, Paul is asking, would they now be perfected by the flesh, that is, works of the law. And that kind of human wisdom is foolishness. Why would we do that? Why would we go back to that? Any suffering that they'd done for their faith previously uh, would have been brought to nothing. As well, they had, they had been uh, privy to the very power of the Holy Spirit working among them in their spiritual gifts. They had seen that. Jesus, Jesus makes an interesting remark in Mark uh, chapter 9, verse 23. There's a, uh, a boy, a demon-possessed boy. The father uh, has, has him brought to Jesus, and the boy is, you know, convulsing, foaming in the mouth, and the father explains how he jumps in the fire and the water, and, and then he says, if you can uh, do anything to help, if you can do anything to help, please help us. Jesus' response is very interesting. In verse 23, he says, uh, 
and Jesus said to him, if you can, repeating his own question back to him, all things are possible to him who believes. And he's pointing at the, the importance of belief here because he doesn't say all things are possible to him who keeps the law. So there is this faith over, over works that, that Jesus is, is clearly speaking of. So Paul is going to be switching gears as we go forward in Galatians. He's going to give us some uh, examples using the patriarchs Abraham and Moses, and he's going to do it by way of contrast. So in these next verses, 6 through 8, Paul's seeking to establish something that's very important here. We've been talking about grace. We've been talking about law. And we talked about covenants beginning with the very first lesson, uh, the two covenants, the new one and the old one. And Paul's going to seek, and he will, establish which came first, the gospel or the law. So let's read Galatians 3, verses 6 through 8. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations we blessed in you. Now it's interesting that Abraham was declared righteous more than 400 years before the law was given to Moses at Sinai. And when Abraham was declared righteous, there were no feasts to keep. There were no Ten Commandments written down. The Israel civil law had not been given. I mean, there was no Israel. Abram, which he was called at the first, before Abraham, he came out of a prosperous pagan center in Chaldea, which is located in southern Mesopotamia. And he was called out by God, and he was given a promise to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. All the nations of the earth. When he was given that, there were all, all, all the world were the nations of the earth. There was no Israel. It, mean, it means everybody. And this promise was passed to Isaac and then on to his son, Jacob. Now, Jacob was the one whose name is later changed to Israel, and he has the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. But here in verse 8, uh, we read something very interesting. It tells us that Abraham was given the gospel, which is actually the new covenant or the New Testament that we've previously talked about. And this means that God's promise to Abraham in this verse is synonymous with the gospel that he would be, that all the nations would be blessed in him, through him. We'll, we'll keep going that. We know that this occurred at least 400 years before the Mosaic Law, which is the Old Covenant, that Old Testament. Now Paul's saying that the New Covenant, the Gospel, preceded the Old Covenant, the Law. And it is, in the end, it'll be the Gospel that will still be efficacious as we enter into eternity, not the Law. So the new covenant, the gospel, was actually first, uh, was first. And we see it as early as Genesis 3.15. God promised a savior to the man and the woman back then, Adam and Eve. And he, he called uh, him, whom we know to be Christ, he called him the seed of the woman. And we know that this seed would bruise the head of the serpent, which is a mortal wound. And it was then nearly 2,000 years later that God speaks to Abram, and at that time, he's nearly 90 years old, and he's still childless. 
And what God said regarding the seed is interesting, and it's found in the 15th chapter of Genesis, verses 4 through 6. Now, I'll tell you, in a, a couple of verses earlier, he had given the promise to Abraham already, and Abraham is going, he's, he's frustrated. He says, well, I guess Eleazar is going to be my heir. Now, Eleazar was his trusted servant. And in, the, in those days, the, the custom was, if you, if you were childless, you left your possessions uh, to your, your highest-ranking servant. And so in, in the frustra uh, frustration and just giving up, Abraham had put that question forth to, to God, the Lord. Here's the response, Genesis 15, verses 4 to 6. Then, behold, the, the word of the Lord came to him, that is, to Abraham, saying, This man, whom we know is Eleazar, will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Look toward the stars, toward the heavens, excuse me, and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he, the Lord, said to Abraham, So shall your descendants, that is, your children, be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So the heir, he is told clearly, is going to come from him. We know this heir was Isaac. And though, and it's through his lineage that the promised seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would come. And the uncountable descendants that are spoken of here are those from every nation who will be blessed by Abraham. And that includes us who've believed. And uh, that he would be redeemed and made, that we were redeemed and made righteous by faith. We are the children of Abraham. That is, if we believe the gospel and by faith we are identif identified as his descendants. You know, and this just surpasses any physical relationship that we have had, that the Jews would have through their lineage. It was interesting how many times the Jewish rulers would point up our father Abraham, our father Abraham, and Jesus knew he had already given the gospel to Abraham and it was going to open up by grace to all believers. Any uh, comments? Okay. Galatians uh, 3, uh, verses 9 through 11. All right. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. In the verse here, we have a a contrast, shoot a sharp contrast, and it's between two groups, between those who are blessed and those who are cursed. We see that those who are of faith are the ones who are blessed, but the many who are of the works of the law are under its curse. This contrast continues going forward in the chapter. The reason for the sharp contrast is evident. Let me say this regarding the law. It is inflexible. It is unyielding, it is, and it is absolute in its demands. The law is one unit. You can't break it apart and choose what you want to obey. Any infraction, whether by commission or omission, constitutes breaking the entire law, which equals unrighteousness. What's more, all the keeping of the law that follows one violation 
can never do anything to remedy that, and it can never erase the guilt associated with it. No person has the power in themselves to keep the law perfectly. Only Jesus ever fulfilled the law. The law requires perfection, and it accepts, it accepts nothing less. There's no blessing in the law, only cursing. And the Apostle James uh, put it well in, in his book, chapter 2, verse 10, to help make things a little more clear. For whoever, James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So by now it should be evident for us that the law wasn't given as, as a means of achieving righteousness, but the law is a means of condemning all unrighteousness. We keep going. Galatians 3.12 states that, However, the law is not of faith, not of faith. On the contrary, who, who practices them shall live by them, speaking of the, all the ordinances of the law. Every unsaved person is identified with Adam, and because of that is twice cursed, twice cursed. The first cursed, and this applies to all of us. From birth, everyone receives the sin nature of our fallen father, Adam, so that we were essentially created in Adam, we're fallen in Adam, and in Adam we're banished from fellowship with God. That's the first curse. The believer doesn't have to stay there. The second curse is that by nature, fallen man is unequipped to meet the righteousness of the law. So instead falls under its condemnation and its curse. How can anyone ever then look to the law for justification? That's the very definition of hopelessness. But just as our sin nature came from the actions of another, any release from that nature must also come from someone else. This is what Paul means in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, where he states, For as through the one man's disobedience, that is Adam's, the many, that means all people, were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that is Jesus Christ, the many, which is all believers, all who will receive it, will be made righteous. So no failed effort to keep the law then can possibly justify us. We are then forced to look by faith to God's appointed Savior for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who steps in and He is our substitute. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, which we know to be the gospel, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, through faith. And Paul is continuing then to emphasize the two curses that are here, uh, excuse me, the two uh, contrasts between cursing and blessing, that is between the law and faith. So it might be helpful to illustrate his point if we uh, consider two of the great Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham and Moses, and the worlds that they represent. Now, uh, there is the, the world or the realm of Moses, and that is represented by the law. His name's even attached to it, the Mosaic Law. Although his name's not mentioned in these specific verses, the law is. 
And we find that there are concepts and there are words that are associated with that world, with Moses' world, the law. Words like works and curses and flesh and condemnation. On the other hand, we have Abraham. And he represents faith, in particular justification by faith. And in his world, there are concepts and words associated uh, such as promise and faith, blessing and spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. So God uh, did give the law through Moses specifically to the Jews. And I should probably stop here for a little reminder. Whenever I start talking about the law and we, we hear all the condemnation, we need to remember and be careful when we do speak of the law. And that's because the Mosaic law is representative of God's righteous requirements. Remember what, what Paul says himself in Romans seven twelve, speaking of the law. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not bad. We just can't uphold it. Now regarding the Gentiles, it didn't matter whether or not they realized it, but from God's perspective, they're also judged by the law and thus falling short of its, of its standards, they come under the curse of the law. Going back to Israel then, the Jews lived in constant awareness of the Mosaic law and it reminded them daily of its demands so that they were ever conscious of their failing, of their shortfall, their inability to keep it. And so they never experienced fully the confidence of God's approval. The truth is that in our fallen nature, our fallen flesh is just not equipped to fulfill the requirements of the law. And that's why it has this system uh, set up of uh, substitutionary sacrifices for atonement for failures, as well as the primary fact is that it pointed to the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice that we have in Jesus. So for both Jew and Gentile, striving to attain to the righteousness of the law or any works means constantly running into the inability uh, of, of ourselves to perform per flawlessly. No wonder Paul says in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, he was taken by the Jewish rulers and, and uh, to their kangaroo court uh, where they tr had these trumped up charges, but they used the very statutes of the law uh, to convict him. And by their false court, he received the death penalty. But... He is the perfect substitutionary sacrifice, meaning he's acceptable, he was acceptable to God, and he was indeed made a curse for us. In doing so, he redeemed us, though, from the curse of the law because he paid the full penalty of the law for our sins. He absorbed the penalty of the law in his very flesh. And now, redeemed from the curse, the believers were released from the realm of Moses. And we can enter into the realm of Abraham's faith, Abraham's blessing, being justified by faith. But make no mistake, the realm of the law is still there. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He said so. For anyone who refuses to believe and to receive the gift of the finished work of Christ, though the law, the curse of the law remains intact. But for those who receive the blessing of Abraham through Jesus Christ, they are recipients of the Holy Spirit through faith. Okay, great. Any comments? 
All right, Galatians 3. We'll keep going. Two more, ver- three, two more verses. 3. Uh, Galatians 3, 15 through 17. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to his seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Paul is very uh, astute, and he makes some great comparisons. And here he's saying uh, that things uh, haven't changed. Essentially, Paul is saying a contract is a contract. And uh, he's saying that God made a contract first with Abraham. Now, in his example, or in his wording, he puts it on the human level so that we can understand. When two parties sign a contract, neither person can arbitrarily change the terms of the agreement. For example, if you're building a house, most people use a contractor, and there's going to be a written contract stating the terms and the conditions. Uh, You then both agree between you on things like the square feet of the house, the floor plan, windows, cabinets, all that stuff, all the details, as as well as the cost that the contract of services will uh, be, need to be paid. Now the written contract, it contains all of this information and both parties sign it. Now if after a period of time the contractor says, well, I've decided on a different floor plan uh, or I've decided to charge you more money, your response is going to be, sure, go ahead. No. <laughs> you're going to say, no sir, you're bound by the contract. And on the other hand, if you decided you wanted to add things to the house or wanted more than what has been previously agreed to for the same price, the contractor is going to say, sorry, our agreement's in writing, and you're bound by the contract. You cannot change it. You cannot add to it. We have a contract. So God's contracts are at least as firm as man's, right? And his promises are far more dependable. We can listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 18, which is very informative here. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, that is Abraham, obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring, desiring to be even more, excuse me, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. If that's not an, insur- an assurance of salvation, I don't know what there is. Uh, this contract here itself, is the promise, it's one-sided. God made it with Abraham and it's unconditional. Further, God's promises we know are immutable because it's impossible for him to lie. We read it just now in Hebrews 6.13 and, and also here in Titus. It's many places. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. In, even more, the fact that he cannot lie. On top of that, he reinforced his promise 
of the contract, which is the gospel, by swearing upon himself. Remember, that promise is the gospel uh, that Paul described in Galatians 8 as Abraham's being a blessing to all nations through his seed. Now, verse 16 of Galatians 3 makes it clear that the contract of the promise from God was made to Abraham and to his seed, which was singular. Singular, that was pointed up. Therefore, there's only one person through whom the promise would come. The Lord Jesus Christ was Abraham's seed. He's also the seed of the woman. And when Abraham believed God's promise, God counted or reckoned it to him for righteousness. We read that in Galatians 3.6. And in doing so, God's revealed something very important to us and all succeeding generations from the Galatians. That is that righteousness is by faith. End of story. And according to the Bible, there is no other source of righteousness. Not works, not keeping the law, not religion. Righteousness is by faith alone, and that faith is in Christ alone. And this is a great place to stop. Any comments? Nobody. Okay. Brian, will you close us in prayer?